Welcome to the Westside Investors Network. Win your community of investing knowledge for growth. This is the Real Estate Professionals Investing Podcast for real estate professionals by real estate professionals. This show is focused on the next step in your career, investing. Thank you for listening. And please, if you like our content, rate us on your podcast provider. Just a quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are for educational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any shares or securities, make or consider any investments or take any other action. And now, AJ and Chris Shepard. We've got an amazing show for you today. Paul Moore will be joining us to talk about DSTs or Delaware Statutory Trusts. He will share with you why DSTs exist and how they are different from syndications and tenant in common structures. Also, he'll discuss what the biggest benefits and drawbacks of a DST are for both the investor and the operator. Paul, welcome to the Westside Investors Network. All right. Today, we've got Paul Moore with us. Thank you, Paul, for coming on the show. You are the managing partner and founder of Wellings Capital and then author of the book, Storing Up Profits. Paul, thank you so much for being on the show. Do you want to start off by maybe just telling us a little bit more about yourself? Yeah. I started out with an engineering degree, which was my first mistake. And then I got an MBA, went to Ford Motor Company. I was itching to be an entrepreneur the whole time. So actually got into a little bit of real estate early on. And then we ended up starting a staffing firm. We ran that for five or six years, sold it to a public company. And like I found myself in 1997 or 98, I should say, living the dream. I was 34 and semi-retired, started a nonprofit organization. I thought, man, I'm going to be the best father and best husband, best friend ever. And I became the worst in all those categories, man, because I was a high energy entrepreneur and I did not know at all, you know, what it would mean to actually not be working like 60 hours a week. And so anyway, I got in residential real estate, started flipping houses, literally at first for fun and to help my friend. And then it became an obsession. And I went from flipping houses to flipping waterfront lots to doing ground up construction, did a subdivision, did a multifamily deal or two in a hotel in North Dakota, and eventually landed squarely in commercial real estate where I wrote a book on multifamily in 2016 and then the self-storage book in 2021. So that's kind of my quick background without taking a breath. Oh my gosh, so much there. So much exciting stuff to talk about. What inspired you to write a book? Yeah. So back in 2008, I was doing this residential real estate website at Smith Mountain Lake in Virginia. And I heard from this marketing guru that you need to write a book to become the expert. So I wrote uh, the definitive guide to Smith Mountain Lake real estate. And I tell you, I made so unbelievably much money, not selling the book, but because people would like contact our website and say, well, if I'm going to buy a half a million or a million dollar home, I want the expert, I want the author. And of course, I wasn't really available that much. I actually passed all those leads to our agents and it was unbelievably helpful. So when I got into multifamily full-time, I decided that's what I want to do again and then self-storage now. Pretty awesome. Go ahead, AJ. Educational platform. 
Well, I was going to say earlier, I really appreciate that you're an engineer. I'm a mechanical engineer <laughs> degree you? as well. So I find All that right. the engineers in real estate are, really have this exceptional ability, you know, not toot my own horn or anything. But so Paul, you are also just an expert on DSTs. And uh, what's a DST? That's what I want to know is what is. I'm just kidding. (laughs) I mean, like, honestly, I think. Which DST? Yeah, which DST? So there's Deferred (laughs) Sales Trust and Delaware Uh Statutory Trust, which is what we are working on. And so you're more familiar with the Delaware Statutory Trust. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. So, I mean, kind of, it's something that's been around for a while, I thought. Yeah. But like. They're kind of elusive to us. I have not participated in one, but I really want to know more like about how they work. I mean, kind of what even prompted like the invention of the DST? Yeah. So there's other types of DSTs, but for our purposes, we're talking about a vehicle that allows people to continue their, basically to have a vehicle to place their 1031 into without actively managing it. Most of your audience probably knows that 1031 exchanges have been around for a long, long time. And the IRS challenged a 1031 exchange, I believe, in the 80s or 90s. And they had a big lawsuit. I think it went to the Supreme Court. And they ended up codifying you know, how a 1031 exchange works. And the IRS made the rules like totally onerous. As many of us know, I mean, you have like 45, you have to give the money to an exchange administrator. You have 45 days to choose one or two or three assets that you might replace until you have six months to close. There is just tons of downsides. It sounds easy till you try it, but (laughs) when people have to do it, you know, they find that especially in this market, there's huge downsides. I mean, the advantages are obvious. You know, you get to carry forward your depreciation losses instead of, you know, paying the piper for the taxes. You get to carry forward the capital gains. I mean, we've all seen those charts where if you can invest tax-free versus tax, you know, if you took a dollar and doubled it daily for a month, you'd have like a million and $30,000. A penny. If you take a penny penny? for 31 days... It's $5 million if you double it. Okay, great. But do you know if if you had a tax, like a 45% tax rate on that, it would be only a small fraction of that. And I mean a small fraction. Yeah. Yeah. So kicking the can down the road is an awesome opportunity. But the problem these days is we all know how hard it is to find real estate assets that make sense. A lot of it's overpriced. Some of it is, you know, basically they're slim pickings. You're going up against a whole bunch of other potential buyers. I mean, let's face it, commercial real estate, especially multifamily, has become super sexy. And a lot of investors who'd never thought about investing in it before, especially with the Jobs Act of 2013, are investing like crazy. Institutional investors are rushing in to all types of asset classes. I mean, even mobile home parks. Green Street says they're in the three plus cap rate range now instead of like 10 or 12 where they were just a few years ago. So there's a lot of people rushing in, which means there's a lot of potential risk. Another issue is that some people like my friend Lambert, 
is in his 70s. He's been kicking this 1031 can down the road since the 1970s. Now, he's like, look, I don't want to actively manage any more apartments. I want to find a way to passively invest. So like, can I invest in your syndication? No. Can you invest in our fund? No, you can't. And so we were trying to come up with opportunities for him. And he called me back one day and excitedly said, hey, my 45-day window is not up yet. And I found this thing called the DST. This was years ago, Delaware Statutory Trust. And so we started looking into it and found out that it was a place that can receive 1031 funds, but it is actually managed by a professional. In other words, it's basically a way to get mailbox money, but keep your 1031 going. So that's a DST, and that's why they exist. Very, very interesting. So at some point in the past, there was something called a TIC, a tenant in common. I mean, it's still out there today, but from my understanding, that's fallen way less Mm -hmm. out of favor, and it's rarely used now. Yeah. And I mean, with the invention of the DST, do you think that that has anything to do with the TIC being so much or so less common? Yeah, Yeah, I think so. So one issue with the tick is that every investor gets an equal and summary vote. I don't think I'm saying it right. But what I mean is this, if you've got an operator with a $10 million apartment complex and they bring in a tick investor, let's say for half a million of that equity, that small investor, relatively small, to the size of the deal, they can completely trump anything the operator wants to do. In other words, the operator's ready to sell the asset. They say, nope, I vote no, and they win. Even if there's 20 tick investors, one that says no trumps everybody. So it's not like, it's just a real pain. And especially for the operators who think they know these investors, but they don't know what happens if that guy dies and his wife's now voting or vice versa. Or there's all kinds of issues that could happen. So the DST is an alternative to this onerous tick structure. And honestly, it's a much better alternative for almost everybody that looks at it. But there are definite downsides too. So can you explain interesting. To, explain to us a little bit how the DST works and is different? Yeah. Than just a normal so the, 1031? Yeah, you bet. So a Delaware statutory trust is an ownership model that creates a legal entity that allows co-investors, they're almost always accredited investors, to invest with a sponsor. And they basically, their share, let's say it's $100,000 out of a $10 million DST. That I believe that's 1%. That 1% share is treated as its own little ownership property. In other words, it's like it's treated sort of like the tenant in common in the sense that you get to preserve your 1031 exchange, but it's managed by a third party, meaning you have a professional owner operator who's doing the asset management, the property management, and you're basically just getting what's typically a projected predetermined return. In other words, you're not like worried about all the value adds. You're not worrying about changing out the kitchens and any of that stuff. In fact, the DST is not friendly to that. DSTs are set up for really stable assets. And so when we did one, we were kind of a rarity doing a self-storage property. The Most of the people doing DSTs are like triple net leases. 
you know, super stable, predictable income without a lot of, you know, hassle or drama in the making. I'm assuming that they're set up in that like yield manner, just because there's like some caveats with the structure. Is that the case? Like why are the yield type plays, you see more of those as DSTs? Yeah, I don't really understand why the DSTs set up that way, but I do know that our attorneys advised us across the board that we didn't want to have assets with a lot of drama. Like if it was a value add, it wouldn't even work. They wouldn't even allow you to do that. If it was something that might have a significant increase or worse yet, decrease in net operating income or vacancy or stuff like that, it would just be a really, really bad asset type for a DST. That's, I think that's one of the reasons you usually see these triple net leases because, hey, it's a Walmart store or I should say a Walgreens or CVS, or even an Amazon warehouse. I know that there's some of those. And so you get a fractional share of that huge asset as an investor. Okay. So with the DST, is it an entity that is set up on a per asset basis? It wouldn't be like you would plan on buying multiple different assets (laughs) with one DST. Right. I mean, I can imagine like three assets that were all in a group being, you know, purchased, like, you know, three self-storage assets all in Plano, Texas, all near each other, you know, kind of bought as one, you know, from one seller at one time. But yeah, it wouldn't be a fund. Like our fund, we have all these different asset types, different operators, different geographies, all that. That would not work for a DST. So, I mean, the way that you kind of described it, it sounded a little bit like syndication, but I mean, it's different than syndication and yeah. it has the ability to accept 1031 exchange yeah. funds. Like what else makes it different than a syndication? Yeah. So it is pretty similar to a syndication. One thing, one downside is these are typically sold by broker dealers. And honestly, I think that the fees they charge, I mean, I'm sure they're worth it for some people, like people who are desperate and need to get a 1031 done, but the front end fees and loads are pretty high. They can be like six to 11% right off the front. And so that's one way it's different from most, you know, Reg D 506 syndications and funds, you know, that we're all used to. But yeah, other than that, it's very similar to a syndication. They've got projected yields. Yields are typically really low. Honestly, they range from four and a half, I mean, maybe 4% even up to nine usually, but the vast majority are four to 6%. And you can see why. I mean, there's not much risk and drama with a CVS or Walgreens. And so that's kind of how most of them are set up, to be honest. I've done a little bit of research on DSTs in the past and I, you know, obviously wanted to talk about multifamily and the DST structure and the conversation just ran into, well, this needs to be a stable asset. You can't like invest any capital into this asset. It needs to be operated as a, you know, normal ongoing business operations. Like you can't, there's no capital calls in DSTs and essentially it pretty much excludes multifamily from being in a DST structure? You know, you would think, 
But if you've got a really stabilized product that you have a set time horizon on, let's say you want to go 10 years or five years and you've done all the value adds that you plan to do, you can do multifamily. In fact, there are quite a few. I would have thought the same thing, but there are quite a few multifamily DSTs. Now, there are even self-storage DSTs. Like I said, we did one. And then also mobile home park DSTs, which is really rare, but they're out there. And now here's a word from our sponsor. Get things done while you're on the move. Learn more about working with a virtual assistant through off-site professionals. It's a great way to get all the things done that you need to get done. Have freedom in your time and streamline your life by automating your business. Stop spending time on the tasks that you can delegate and start spending more time on your superpower. Call us today at 503-446-3177 or visit our website at offsiteprofessionals.com. And so will you walk us through like your DST? So what was it like to create it? And then how did you find the 1031 exchange funds? And like, what was it like going through that process? Yeah. And so we would have lots of investors contact us with a 1031 exchange. I mean, I had one yesterday, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars. I got a place that I got 43 days left. I'm getting nervous. And so this kept going on for years. We finally, you know, like I said, we heard about the DST. We researched it. We got with our attorneys and we got, you know, this DST up and running. What we did is we to try to lower the risk for investors and for everybody, we actually selected an asset that we'd already invested in in our fund. And we took an asset that had already been completely stabilized. It was just running, you know, and we was expecting rate increases every couple months, like self-storage often does, but not expecting any huge drama. And there hasn't been, in fact. But we acquired it for the exact appraisal value into the DST, and that was $4.6 million. When you tacked on, we don't even use broker-dealers. I mean, we literally raised the money ourselves. So we had no broker-dealer fees, no sales commission, no due diligence fee, all that stuff on the front end. We kept it as lean as we could. But even with all that, the attorney's fees and the debt, the fees on the debt, the basically other fees got us up from 4.6 million to around 5 million. So we have this $5 million purchase. Now this is one of the downsides for the operators, guys. The operator takes on all the debt, obviously, just like a syndication and that shields, by the way, that's a huge advantage for investors. They don't have to take on any debt in their name at all. The, The maximum liability, just like a syndication is limited to their investment amount. But when we got the debt, I mean, we got like, I think it was 43% debt. So I think we took, if I'm not mistaken, it was about 2.3 million in debt, 2.6 million in debt. And then the other 2.4 million was equity. So we had to go raise that equity. So we started putting the word out. We were on the real estate guys radio. We put the word out with our investor list and other places. Hey, if you've got a 1031 exchange, and you don't want the hassle of continuing to operate the next asset and the risk of overpaying for an asset or not even finding one in time, then this might be an opportunity for you to get you know, into this passive investment and preserve your 1031 exchange. And so over about four months, we raised that 2.4 million in equity, I believe it was. 
we were up and running. Now, if you think about what I just said, we had to front that money. So in other words, that's another oh. that's a disadvantage for the operator. You've got to front the money to buy the asset and then you get repaid by investors who come in over the next months or even years. And so that's a risk for the operator. So, but you were taking this from your fund. So essentially you as the operator purchased the property at the appraised value from the fund and then mm-hmm. sold shares in the, as a DST entity? Yeah, that's right. I mean, we were not actually the operator. Our fund actually invests with the best operators we can find. And one of our operators had this asset. And their investors, by the way, got a wonderful return on this. I mean, they had raised yeah. the value from 2.3, wait, to 2.4 to 4.6 yeah. in a short time. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. I got another question. Like, what happens at yeah. the end of a DST? Like, I'm kind of getting that they're typically longer type deals. You mentioned five, 10 years. I'm assuming that they're yeah. kind of like 10 or 15 year type deals. But like, what happens at the end? I like to say that they're long deals. And I'm going to tell you why they're, I'm going to tell you something horrible about that in a minute. But I did a special report on DSTs and I didn't even realize when I wrote the report that a lot of these folks set these up to be six, eight, 10, 12 years. We set up ours for 12 and we're committed to stay in the course. But a lot of these operators are getting these offers they can't refuse and they're closing these DSTs out in two and a half to three years. And we all know that that's happening in commercial real estate right now. People are getting these massive offers. And so you think, hey, somebody got in, they did all the due diligence to invest a hundred or a thousand or a million dollars in this DST. They want to let it go and not think about it while they enjoy their life or their retirement. But then they get notice in two and a half years, oh, we're selling we'll happily transfer you into our next DST. Okay, well, that didn't sound so bad, except think about this. All those sales commissions, loads, and fees are paid again. And so that is a downside for investors. Oh, they're to just like churning them. They're churning them. And here's the thing. We found out by doing a DST that the operators don't make that much money. The, look, all the profits except for a small, basically a management fee and a small override, go to the investors. And at the end, whether it's two and a half years or 12 years, the capital gains are all paid to the investors. There's no profit sharing at all. All the operator can do is get like a 1% liquidation fee. And so to answer your question, when the asset's sold, the money's returned to the investors and they can do another 1031 exchange out just like they got in with the 1031 exchange. Typical returns, again, maybe 5% a year through the course of the life of the asset. And then maybe the appreciation might be, who knows, three, four, five, 10% a year as well on the back end. So the appreciation advertised by these DSTs is really low. They're projecting it really low. And I think, though I can't prove this, I think the reason is they plan to take an early offer and get out and then churn that money again. That's why I think you don't see much potential upside with these. I guess I kind of see an application in like maybe a newer building, like some build that just gets done, it gets 100% leased up. And then like 
you know, that it's brand new. And so you don't have a lot of fixing up to do no capital improvements. And, you know, it seems like you could run that for 10 to 15 years and do pretty good. (laughs) But I hear where you're saying in the churn, I mean, one other question that I would have for you is you said that broker dealers are the ones that are pushing these, like, how else can you find DSTs and find people that are doing this or using this sort of mechanism? I'm not saying this to advertise because honestly, we don't have any DSTs available right now. So it wouldn't help if I was advertising, but I'll tell you, we did not find one other DST ever that was done without broker dealers. But we asked our attorney, we said, what's in the law? What says we have to use broker dealers? And the attorney scratched their head and was like, well, everybody does. I said, what in the law says you have to? And they couldn't find anything. So we did it without broker dealers. And so our investors didn't pay that front end load. You know, I want to correct that. I did hear a rumor and that's about it, that there's a company called Red Dot Storage that has some, and they might be straight to the investor without a broker dealer. People can check them out. I'm not recommending them because I don't know them, obviously. So like we know that syndications have like rules when it comes to the SEC exceptions. Are there rules related to DSTs when it comes to advertising and investment? Basically, it's the most similar, I would say, to a Reg D 506C which is something you can advertise as long as you're only taking accredited investors and they're verifying their accreditation status. Okay. So this advertising of DST is is essentially limited to accredited investors? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, it doesn't actually have to be. I heard that, though I've never verified this, I've heard that some people you could put non-accredited, like the 35 non-accredited, like a Reg B or Reg D 506B. I mean, but mm-hmm. I've never verified that. And everybody I asked said they'd never once heard of a DST that was anything below accredited investors. Very interesting. So what was it like working with, I mean, I'm assuming you worked with attorneys in Delaware, correct? What was it like setting it up and like, did they make it easy or was it a pretty difficult process? Yeah, the attorneys weren't in Delaware. There's people all across the country that set these up. Richmond, Virginia seems to be the, for whatever reason, kind of the hub of the DST realm. And so there are at least three major law firms in Richmond who compete for a lot of this business. And also Wealthforge, which is one of the broker-dealer management firms, they actually have a large percentage of the DSTs. They're in Richmond also. But yeah, I thought for a more visionary, more salesy, promoting type guy who's out there doing educational stuff like this podcast, to me, the process was laborious. I mean, it was like, I called it a nightmare, but... My business partner and our operating partner who said basically, you know, this was more in their wheelhouse. They said it was pretty much average level of hassle for setting up stuff. I will say this, you can set up a 506, you know, a reg D 506 for something like 10 to $20,000. Typically this was many times that trust me. (laughs) I mean, the typical quote we got was a hundred to 120,000 just to set it up. And so that made sense at the 
$4.6 million level. That seems barely. Barely. Yeah. I tell you, we didn't pay that much. We actually got a much, much better deal with the hope, you know, this attorney was thinking, well, hopefully they'll come back and be a regular client and do a lot more of these. And we can talk about why we haven't yet in a minute, but it made sense in the sense that the nine, 10, 11% sales commission wasn't there. So that was one of the reasons it worked. I mean, if we were a $50 million DST and paid 120000 to set it up, I and mean, that would obviously be way, way better economies to scale. Very interesting. Well, I'll ask the question, why don't or aren't you jumping to do more? Yeah, a couple of reasons. Number one, we thought based on the investor interest, I don't know if you guys have noticed this, 1031s, I don't know why, they seem to ebb and flow for us. Like we had like six inquiries about 1031, like people wanting to place cash from their 1031. We had like six in two weeks, I remember once. And then another time we went like a month without getting any. Well, they didn't fill up as fast as we thought. I mean, the 2.4 million we thought would be raised in a few weeks and it actually took like four months. That was one thing, that's not so bad. The other issue is when the new president went into office, you know, there was a threat that the 1031 would be either eliminated or more likely significantly limited. And so with 1031 exchanges being potentially eliminated or, you know, cut way back, we didn't think it was worth the risk. I mean, we'd like to do a $20 million one next, you know, maybe four times larger, not worth the setup cost and hassle and risk if there's any chance that 1031s are gonna go away. That's the issue. Interesting. Do you feel more comfortable that 1031s removed from the chopping block and that maybe something in the future? Or are you guys still worried that it's a possibility that they could be regulated a little bit more? I think it's extremely unlikely. We all remember the IRA scare back in October, you know, where they were talking about, you know, like greatly limiting or maybe eliminating certain IRA yeah, private placements. benefits. Yeah, that's it. Private placements. I couldn't remember that. I think this is nothing like that. I think it's extremely likely that the 1031 will go on as it is. I mean, let's face it. There's probably a lot of people in DC that use 1031 exchanges So I think it'll go along, but I mean, we couldn't risk. I mean, there were fees getting the debt set up. There were fees getting the administrator set up. There were lots of fees. And honestly, it would not make sense for us to do all that and then see it go south. Yeah. Do you find the deal first and then set up the DST or do you kind of set up the DST and be like, all right, once we've got all the structure set up, we'll go find a deal. Yeah, we definitely find the deal first. The structure, we launched this right the same month that COVID hit the headlines. And so, you know, it took a long time to even get the debt set up. I mean, it took like five months from the day we pulled the trigger to when we even got rolling. Part of the reason, well, the reason was the debt. We had to shop the debt and then reshop the debt. And there's not a lot of people who know or understand how to even do debt for DSTs. The ones that do are great, but it took us a while to find it. You want to expand on just the requirements for the debt and how it's different from regular real estate? 
Uh, let's see. So the debt would be, you know, probably a lot lower LTV. Most DSTs I see are in the 50% range. Secondly, there's no refinancing at all allowed. You couldn't actually, you know, pull more lazy equity out in year four or whatever. There's no refinancing of any kind allowed in the whole term of the DST. And let's see, the co-signers on the loan are basically the principals of the operating company, or in our case, you know, us and the other company co-signed on that loan, on that debt. Yeah, I think it's non-recourse, just like large syndication debt would be non-recourse. So those are what I would say would be similar and different. Who did you guys get the loan through? I can't remember. I'd have to look it up and that would cause it- dead air and you guys would all be bored. <laughs> oh, well, was it like a agency loan, like a Freddie Mac or a Fannie Mae, or was it like some insurance oh, company? Yeah, it was CMBS debt. So it definitely was not agency debt. Great question. And yeah, it was set up by a private broker. It was commercial mortgage-backed security debt. And the rate was fine. I mean, it was like in the, you know, the 4% range or so, which was, you know, not great, but not terrible. So do you think it was COVID that made it so difficult to raise funds? Or do you think that you just overestimated the demand? Well, okay. So I honestly think personally that COVID had this impact, you know, basically, I don't know if you remember, but they stretched out the 1031 window a little bit because, you know, people couldn't get on planes and go look for assets. And so I think that that might have caused a little bit of an impact. I don't think we necessarily overestimate the demand. We might have overestimated our ability with our limited network to sell this. Now, here's what I mean. We have 6,000 people on our email list. Our partner company had probably about the same. Lots of people who love to invest, but think about it. You've got to get the 1031 timing right on the nose. They've got to like the asset. They've got to be okay with getting what we offered, which was a 6% flat return. They've got to be, you know, I mean, it just everything had to come together at the right time. And though in a course of a year, we get tons of people wanting to do 1031s. It just was a little slower than we thought it'd be at that time. If the average investor was $200,000, what would that take? It would take, I mean, that's only what? 12 investors, I think, to fill it up. And you know, if we were doing a regular syndication offer, we might be able to, you know, bring in a hundred investors at 15 million in that same amount of time. But, you know, it wasn't to be. Now, I will tell you, that's the advantage of broker dealers. I mean, if you need to fill it up fast, broker dealers, they're all over the country. You've got people like K Properties, Wealthforge, Exchange Right. I mean, they've got, you know, thousands and thousands of their, you know, their tentacles are everywhere. And so when people need a 1031, they go to them typically. So after having gone through this DST process, like what's your takeaway? What do you think the biggest benefit is? What do you think the biggest drawback is? For investors or for the operator? How about both? What about for you? (laughs) Yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, no. No, seriously, for the investors, it's keeping their 1031 ball in the air, keeping that capital gains, you know, kicking down the road, hopefully swap till you drop. Also having a passive investment opportunity, they can basically take their hands off and they can let somebody else run it while they play golf or something. The investors get 100% of the appreciation. The investors don't have to take on debt. 
rather than have, you know, scouring the country on a race against the 45 day clock, investors can choose in one day. They can literally pick from like literally 30 or 40 or 50 DSTs in one day. They can decide. It can fit any size exchange. I mean, within reason. And it's passive money. It's mailbox money. I mean, it's really for people who want a stable, predictable return. And they're in the, you know, wealth shielding mode. In other words, the risk preservation stage of life. Honestly, this is a great opportunity for them to invest. Those are some of the biggest benefits. And then what was your experience like being, you know, part of the team who set up Mm. the DST and actively raised funds for it. Yeah. So we knew this before we pulled the trigger that this was only, you know, at a $5 million deal level, the profit would be pretty limited. And it really is. We viewed this as a stepping stone again, before the administration change to much, much larger DSTs. I mean, there are DSTs out there. Some of them are 30, 50 or a hundred million dollars or more. And so we're talking, you know, the economies of scale, when you get broker dealers bringing in the capital, I mean, are really good for them, especially when they're churning two and a half, three years instead of 10. We're committed to a 12-year window. We didn't charge broker dealer fees. And honestly, it was an okay experience. It wasn't the best experience of our life. I think our investors are super happy because we're communicating with them really regularly. We're doing everything we said we would. I think we got some accrued profits, you know, to pay them on top of their 6% coming soon. I mean, I think for the investors, it was great. Well, I feel like I've learned a ton about DSTs. Anything before we get on to our final four questions? You know, I would really look at the operator's track record to see, you know, I would really recommend that you see how long they typically hold their assets. That's not something people would normally expect to, you know, necessarily ask. So I would check that. Another thing is my friend who I told you about in his 70s, he had $2.1 million to put into a DST and he actually was able to negotiate the broker commissions, the broker dealer commissions, get this, to half. So he was actually... I would definitely recommend that you try to negotiate. That's great. I mean, that makes a ton of sense. Yeah, right? Cool. Yeah. All right. Well, I will start us off with our first of our last four questions. The first one being, what's one piece of advice you would give to your 25-year-old self? Can I do two? Of course. Absolutely. (laughs) One for each brother. We'll take all the advice you want to give us. (laughs) Okay. So the first thing I would do is I would actually really clearly define and understand what the difference between speculating and investing is. You know, investing is when your principal's generally safe and you've got a chance to make a return. Speculating is when your principal's not at all safe and you've got a chance to make a return. And, you know, the first Nobel Prize winner in economics from the U.S. said that if you want to have fun with your investing, you're probably not really investing. You're probably gambling. He said, if you really want fun, take $800 and go to Las Vegas. So I recommend that people really define that really well. When I invested in my 20s and 30s, 
I will tell you that looking back, I was so often speculating. Like the time I gambled on, you know, the subdivision rules changing and me being able to split these lots. Or, you know, when I threw, my friends and I threw over a million dollars to the bottom of a hole in the ground in North Dakota and expected 50 million in oil to come out and nothing came out. And so that's speculating versus investing. The other thing is quite simple. If you're a real estate investor, I would consider the possibility of jumping into commercial real estate sooner than later. Awesome. All right. What was, can I I ask you to expand on why jumping into commercial real estate sooner? Yeah. I mean, residential is great and I enjoyed my time in residential, but commercial is much more scalable. There's typically more tax benefits as a syndicator and, or a fund manager. The tax benefits are unbelievably amazing and the opportunity to scale is much better. I mean, a friend of mine had 105 single family homes in Cincinnati and then he went out and bought a hundred or so unit apartment complex. And he was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe how much easier this is than having about the same number of doors in the single family realm. So it's just so much more scalable in every way. I mean, most of the Forbes 400, the wealthiest people in America invest in commercial real estate. There must be a reason why. I think that's um, great advice. <laughs> okay. What was your first entrepreneurial endeavor? So I was in college and we, about two thirds of the students lived, you know, more than a day or two drive from the college. And so we noticed that there was no Easter break at our school. And so we thought, wouldn't it be cool to offer parents to surprise their kids by giving them an Easter basket for Easter? So we actually somehow or another got the college to agree to giving us a label, like a mailing label for every single student. And we actually used the college bulk rate to mail these letters out inviting parents, you know, on our dot matrix printer, we printed all these letters up and we got a massive response. And so we sold hundreds of Easter baskets you know, to these parents who wrote a check and mailed it back to us. And then we set the Easter basket by their door early Easter morning. That's awesome. That is awesome. That's a new one. Yeah. That's different. I love hearing the first entrepreneurial stories of just like, ah, I'm going to have to steal that for, you know, when I have kids. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'll tell you how we regressed after that. We thought, well, if they like this so much, they'll love having birthday cakes and so we started mailing letters to every you know, parent about three weeks before the kid's birthday. And again, somehow or another, the dean let us have all that information. It's kind of weird. Anyway, we found that was like going from commercial down to residential. I mean, we had to work a little bit every week as opposed to you know, work like 48 hours straight over one weekend. You know, It was not as fun. And when we added the balloons, man, the helium, oh. Anyway, <laughs> fun times like right. the chipmunks, <laughs> like the chipmunks. All right. Yes. Next one. How has your formal and informal training shaped your journey? Yeah. You know, I've got four kids who are ranging from 16 up to 28 and none of them have done a four year degree. And I think they saw the fact that I did six years of college and though the 
MBA and the engineering were helpful. I wasn't doing anything like that. And I pointed out to all of them, all the people that we knew who weren't using their degrees, including the lady we know who racked up like a 80 or a hundred thousand dollars in student debt, getting a French degree. And she never could find a job, you know, teaching French. I'm not making fun of anybody who speaks French, except I have noticed this weird thing. Did you notice the French have a different word for everything? I'm just saying. Anyway, okay, enough comedy jokes. You can cut that out later in the editing. But no, seriously. So they all got kind of like excited about being entrepreneurs. And so the three that are actually out of college, one did get a two-year degree. And he's crushing it as a real estate investor. But the other two, you know, that have come along since then have no interest in a full four-year degree. All that said, I will say that, you know, I think they saw for me that my informal education through books and podcasts and mentoring, especially coaching and mentoring, all those type of things, that was far, far more valuable to me. And they've caught that. That's awesome. Okay. Our final question what was your biggest mistake and what did you learn? How much time do we have? (laughs) (laughs) Just one, just one. Okay, guys, I've got a podcast called How to Lose Money. And so we interviewed 238 investors and entrepreneurs about all their pain, suffering and loss on the way to the top. And I was the first one. There are so many mistakes in my history. Let's see. One was, so I read, I think it was Fortune Magazine in 2006 or seven. The headline was, the real estate bubble is about to burst. And I've never been able to find that. I Googled it, but I had that magazine. I read the article and I went, Psh, yeah, it's different this time. It's different this time. <laughs> Famous last words. And so, yeah, I bought one more waterfront lot at Smith Mountain Lake in Virginia. We were making a killing buying lots from let's say people who had owned them, you know, maybe inherited them 20 years ago or they bought them for $30,000. Now they're worth 300 and we would give them a fair price. We'd go in and clean it up, fix it up, put a park bench on it, maybe get a dock permit, beautifully marketed on our website. Well, I bought one more lot and several people in my sphere of influence said, I wouldn't buy that lot. So I actually did. And I lost hundreds of thousands of dollars on that lot. And it was a long and painful experience. So that was my worst individual deal for sure. So if you could go back and like, what information would you take in to, you know, be a little more educated in that situation? Yeah, I think a lot of it was hubris, just, you know, thinking that, well, you know, I can overpay for this lot a little bit. And I didn't see several other risks that were, you know, that I should have seen. I think the best information, if you wanted to go back somehow in time and give me Howard Mark's book, Mastering the Market Cycle, Getting the Odds on Your Favor or on Your Side, if I could have had that book and if I would have been humble enough to read it and apply it, I would not have bought that lot and maybe a few other things over the years. Cool. Okay. Well, all thank you so much. It's just been a pleasure chatting with you. Yeah, it's been really um, great. Thank you. If, uh, if anyone wants to get a hold of you, do you have any contact information that you'd like to share? Yeah. So if you would like to get a special report on investing in DSTs, we have that available free. 
We also have other stuff like how to get involved in commercial real estate investing, mobile home park investing, self-storage. You can get that at Wellings Capital. That's W-E-L-L-I-N-G-S, wellingscapital.com forward slash resources. That is awesome. Well, thank you again, Paul. Yeah, Paul, really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, it's been a real honor and a pleasure to be here. Thank you. You guys are great interviewers. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Real Estate Professionals Investing Podcast on WIN, your community of investing knowledge for growth. We hope that this episode has increased your knowledge and added value to your path to freedom. If you would, please take a second to rate us so that we can get more great investors to interview. If you or someone that you know wants to be on, please visit westsideinvestors.com and fill out our form to be on the show. Thank you again and enjoy your day.